This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Natalie Battaglia. She's deputy science team lead for NASA's Kepler mission and a professor of physics and astronomy at San Jose State University. I spoke with her on December 13, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of KQED in San Francisco. Download the MP3 of that produced show with Natalie Battaglia at onbeing.org. Um, they, uh, what their needs are, too. So we'll just get this one started, okay? Okay, sure. Oh, I have a good one. You should be able to hear someone now. Natalie? I don't hear anybody okay. now. Hello? Hello in a moment. Okay. I'm sorry, your voice is... Hello? Okay. Hello? How I got here. I drove across the Bay Bridge from the East Bay in my little Honda Civic. (laughs) Hello? Hello, Minnesota. Are you there? Yes, I'm... uh... I'm, she, I'm, I'm saying hello. She's not hearing me. Hello, Minnesota Public Radio. Are you there? Hello? We are not able to hear you. Okay. Okay. Hello? Hello, hello? Yes. Oh. Hello. I, <laughs> I, I can hear you. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you get lost in the building? No, no, no. I oh. think that uh, the contact that you had provided for me, he's out today. So they, they had trouble finding somebody, oh, I think, all right. to, I'm sorry. to escort me. Well, I'm glad no you problem. got there. Um, do you yeah. have any questions for me before we start? Uh, no, I guess not. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't really know what to expect. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is it Roseanne? Is that her name? No, Nancy. Nancy. Uh-huh. Uh, she gave me a little idea of what you guys are looking for. And okay. I listened, listened to some of your podcasts and... Uh, but, you know, we'll just Good. play it by ear. Okay, then we'll just have an adventure. That's okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I've, interviewed, um, I've interviewed a number of co- colleagues, I'm sure. Mario Livio at the Hubble Space uh-huh. Telescope and uh, Marcelo Gleiser recently. Do you know him at Dartmouth? He's a physicist. I, I don't know him personally, but I know who he is. Yeah, yes. so these are, I love, I love anything near physics and cosmology. <laughs> oh, good. Good, good, yeah. good. I also had some fun ones talking to some uh, people from the Vatican Observatory. Do you know those? Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I don't know them. No, I don't know them personally. No. <laughs> yeah. That um, must have been a kick. It was. Actually, and they were hilarious. I mean, truly hilarious. Um, <laughs> but I interviewed two Jesuits who have uh, asteroids named after them. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Great. Said, yeah, one of them said... Uh, you know, this is a slight consolation to my parents that I won't be giving them grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> he gave them an asteroid instead. Right. Yeah, it's his legacy, right? That's right. We'll carry, carry on the family name. name. Yeah, the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, so I'm getting the. Right, can we just go? Okay, then let's start. I've had a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed um, just digging into. Oh, what you've things you've written, uh, interviews you've given, watching your um, the panel you were on at World Science Festival, and also uh-huh. looking at your Facebook page, which is wonderfully profound. Oh, jeez, yeah. So, uh, so that's yeah. We're just going to talk that about Facebook page is getting me into trouble. Is you it? Know? Mike Lemon <laughs> Mike Lemonick just recently published a new book called Mirror, Mirror Earth, and right before it went to publication, he sent me an email asking if he could quote my Facebook page. <laughs> 
It is great. Oh, geez. I need to be careful what I say on there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so I just, I'd like to start, uh, I kind of start near this place somehow with everyone. Um, you know, I'm just curious with you. You you, you write in, in the context of of science and life. You know, you you speak about love and knowledge, and in, in you speak about these things in very luminous terms. And and I've seen you describe um, you know moments of scientific discovery as akin to a religious experience. And and I just wondered, yeah. you know, as we start, was there any um, more traditional religious or spiritual background um, at the beginnings of your life? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, it may be in a non-traditional path. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Probably my very first experience with religion, actually. I had a neighbor, uh, a, a, little, a girlfriend, a, a friend who lived next door, and her family was very uh, much involved with the Baptist church. And every once in a while, a Sunday would come, they would invite me to go with them and maybe go to the Sunday school with my friend. And and I, I was like eight years old. And, and I remember all of a sudden, one day I'm up on the stage at the church and I'm getting saved and next thing I know, I'm in a room getting my feet washed. And this was all very perplexing to me. You know, I, I wasn't really raised in a religious home early on in my life, although my mom was raised very Catholic. Mm. Um, but, but I had this experience, and it, I, I guess it made me curious. I was kind of perplexed about it, and I started digging into my own history, my own roots, um, you know, trying to understand why my mother wasn't involved with the Catholic Church anymore, what that meant mm. and what her experiences were. And and so at about nine years old, I asked my mom to enroll me in catechism. And mm. I, I, I just, I wanted to learn about it. I don't know why. I, I must have been a weird kid. Kids don't usually ask for that, but um, but I, I actually did. think that's not such an uncommon story if kids don't. Really? Yeah, okay. if kids aren't okay. given it, they well, get good. curious. It's those kids who get really interested in it. <laughs> okay, there yeah. you go. Yeah. So so she did. Um, I, I in, was enrolled in catechism and I went through the whole experience and, you know, did the sacraments, took the sacraments and and just really learned a lot about it and took it pretty seriously up until the point, um, maybe around 15 years old, I remember my grandfather dying and it was the first uh, close relative who had ever died. So my first kind of experience with death and I remember not even shedding a single tear because mm-hmm. I thought to myself, you know, this is just ephemeral. I, there's a heaven and I'm going to see him and, mm-hmm. and you know, this is all just temporary. So, so I was very, very much into the Catholic tradition at that time. Mm-hmm. But, but simultaneously, things really took a turn. Um, so I, I encountered a couple of books that really changed things for me. And, and I think uh, probably I was experiencing a little bit of dissatisfaction, too. Yeah. Um, yeah so that, that's the beginnings. That's the traditional religious experience okay. that you were asking about. Well, I'm just curious what, what books um, changed you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I came across a book, and I don't even know how. I don't know where it came from. I, I was an avid reader as a kid, but this book kind of appeared out of nowhere. It was uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, actually. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, a short little book and kind of a metaphor. And, you know, it, it almost, when you, when you start reading the story of this seagull, it almost, uh, there are similarities to the Christian faith. You know, you kind of expect at the beginning that maybe it's a, 
symbolic representation of kind of a messiah story. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have that impression at the beginning, but then it turns into something quite different. Uh, it turns into this uh, description of, of this passion for for knowledge and discovery and, and, and evolution, you know, trying to evolve into something and, yeah. and trying to find meaning and, and celebrating the joy of that. And, and then also at the same time, um, observing that we're all equal, that we're all the same and sharing this common human experience and and yet there are mysteries and and wonders and things to be discovered and it it really opened my mind a lot and got me thinking and and increased the feelings of dissatisfaction I think I was experiencing with the with the traditional church. Mm-hmm. So, but yet at the same time, it was similar enough to what I'd learned in the catechism classes that it, my mind was open to it. So it was kind of the right book at the right time for me. Mm-hmm. It kind of bridged the gap or, you know, bridged that transition between a traditional religious upbringing and science later, yeah. if you if you want to distinguish them. So that, that was the first book. Um, the second book came along uh, when I was about 18. And that was a book written by Carl Sagan called Brokaw's Brain. I think the subtitle is like The Romance of Science, something like that. And, of course, at 18 years old, any title that has the word romance in it has <laughs> got to be good, right? Right. So, <laughs> um, no, but it, it, it was very much along those themes as well, you know, the wonder of the universe and the glory of it. And, and I had experienced very deep feelings of reverence for the mysteries of the universe and and feeling that that sense of of beauty, you know, just very yeah. intense beauty. Um, so that that also was just the right book at the right time, just presenting things in in a really new way for me. Um, and it was right at the beginning of college, and right. you know, in college, all possibilities, everything's possible, right? So um, it really uh, sowed the field with the right seeds uh, to experience college in that way. So I mean, you you've described yourself now as a as a planet hunter, and I wonder mm-hmm. if you know if you if you had heard that phrase in your childhood. Is there was there anything in your earliest life that that pointed at that at this uh, as being where not, your passion would go? Yeah, <laughs> no, not at all, not even remotely. Um, you know, when I was a kid, gosh, what did I want to do? I wanted to be a gymnast. I wanted to be like Olga Corbett and Nadia Comaneci. Right. And I wanted, you know, I was a cheerleader in high school and, you know, my parents um, didn't go to college. So I didn't really have examples in my life of of what that was. And I didn't know what it meant to be a scientist. I imagined it as a boring job. I imagined a, you know, Caucasian male middle-aged, dressed in a white lab coat, right. sitting by himself in a lab, you know, that, that wasn't me. Um, so I didn't know what it meant at all. Um, nevertheless, there were things along the way, you know. Um, I'm perhaps too young for, uh, to remember the Apollo program. I was, I think, two or three years old when, when uh, man landed on the moon, so I don't really have that as a guidepost. But uh, certainly the shuttle program in the 1980s when I was in high school. Right, right. Uh, really, really, of course, you know, it, it touched us all. We all got that bug of um, exploration. And, you know, I saw that as just the most exciting job anybody could possibly have mm. on planet Earth. 
so I think that that was in was the backdrop. I've I've read this story. I mean, I also like the way you you have t- seen you talking about how you got into science and and that you actually didn't you start out studying business in college? Is that right? I did. Yeah. yeah. And that you took a physics class and that you weren't actually very good at it, which is comforting. I think that's good for people right. to hear. But that physics you were, is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, you know that you weren't immediately a genius, but that you. That you had this epiphany around somebody explaining rainbows in oil puddles to you. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, I remember the moment very clearly. You know, in, in high school, I was always good at math. So there was some skill there, you know, some kind of ability for abstractions. And, you know, math came somewhat easily to me in those early years. So... But you're right. I went to college thinking I was going to be a business major. I think that's what I saw reflected back at me from my relatives and friends and family. Mm -hmm. And so I started down that path. But yet, being good at math, what I decided to do was to leave all all the possibilities open. And so instead of taking the math class for the business majors, I decided I was going to take the math classes for the engineers and scientists. You know, I guess maybe in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, I might bridge science uh, uh, or business and science or business and technology. Mm. Maybe a, I didn't know this term at the time, but maybe project management or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, then at a certain point, I just I guess I became a little disillusioned and I didn't I wasn't enjoying the business classes. It wasn't really what I expected from a college experience, you know. And so I I did. Well, before enrolling in that physics class, I I had another moment where I I asked myself a really hard question. I said, "Okay, Natalie, you know, if you could do anything, what is what would it be? You know, let's let's really lay all the cards on the table here. (laughs) What what would you do? You know, and uh, the answer just came to me so quickly that it it, it impressed me. And and the answer was I'd work for the space program in some capacity. And so that's when I realized I needed more of a scientific background. And so. I did. I enrolled in that physics class, and oh boy, I struggled. Man, it was just a completely new way of thinking. I had never had to do that before. Um, developing those analytical, you know, powers, um, uh, mental capacities was really new. Um, but but as you said, that key moment came. Uh, sitting in a lecture hall at UC Berkeley, you know, with those old wooden desks in one of these big <laughs> lecture halls, the dusty chalkboard at the front and, you know, the professor with the, the blazer and all of that. You can picture the scenario, you know, it's just stereotypical, yeah. right? And and he's talking just kind of monotone in a monotone voice about refraction, which is the the you know behavior of light uh, interacting with different media, uh, bending the light waves and and separating out the different colors of light in different directions and how we see a rainbow as a consequence and and he's describing this and he uses his analogy the the rainbow of color on an oil slick you know floating on top of water which of course we've all seen mm-hmm. it's something so common to us. And and at the same time, he's writing down all these mathematical equations on the board. And it just struck me at that moment, my gosh, you know, the universe is not a random collection of chaotic, you know, events. It's, it's, it can be explained with numbers. It can be explained with math. Even beauty can and, be explained with numbers and, and with math. Ex- exactly. Yeah. And at that moment, I think I all of a sudden had this idea that, you know, maybe all the mysteries of the universe— 
are there for us to discover. Mm. Maybe, maybe there's no limit to what we could know mm. if, if the universe is so ordered. And, and that was very profound to me. And, and so at that point, there was no going back. Right. <laughs> at that point, you know, despite the, the C I earned in that class, I was actually quite <laughs> proud of that C. I, I was very, very proud of that C and, and um, took it from there. And, and very quickly, um, I did learn how to think that way. And, and it changed my brain mm. and in, in, in exciting ways. So and and now, since since with what neuroscience is discovering, in the meantime, we know that you're really right when you say that that it changed your brain, right? It created all. You know, this. <laughs> I've, exactly. Yeah. I've only come to appreciate that recently, uh-huh. and and uh, I absolutely agree. This is really. Uh, in fact, I was um, in Norway earlier this year at the Kavli Prize Week. And um, the Kavli Prize is given, to, it's awarded to astrophysics, nanoscience, and, and neuroscience. And mm. so I, I really was lucky to be able to sit in on some of those neuroscience lectures and, and made those connections. Um, Such exactly an interesting conjunction, that astrophysics yeah. and neuroscience. Wow. It, it really is. Yeah, absolutely. I agree completely. I mean, so the sphere you've ended up taking this this passion into is um, this world of looking for planets or this world of exoplanets, first of all, which I've, I've, you know, I think that term is, I I wasn't sure what that meant, you know, when I first heard it. It's just, it's, it's stars um, outside or planets outside our solar system. That right? That's right. We're okay. looking for not not planets in our own solar system. We're looking for, you know, exo means out. So outside the solar system, planets orbiting, uh, gravitationally bound and orbiting other stars in our galaxy. And there was a great breakthrough in this in 1995. Could you could you explain what we learned then that's that's helped set this field off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually fortuitously happened to be there. Um, oh, I didn't know was that. A, there was, yeah, um, I was a graduate student at the time, and um, I, my advisor was responsible for constructing um, an instrument on the Keck 10-meter telescope in Hawaii. This was the world's largest telescope at the time. And I had the great fortune of being able to use some of the data that was taken, that very first light data from that telescope and that particular instrument. And so, you know, all eyes in the world were on that data set and wanted to know about it. And and so I think, actually, he got invited to go to this conference and talk about the data, but he couldn't go. And so he sent me instead. Oh. And I, I was using this data for my thesis. And uh, so I went to this conference. Actually, there were two conferences, one in Vienna and then the following week, there was one in Florence, Italy. And so I went to both of them because they were both related to my field. And very naively, as a graduate student, there I am sitting in the audience, and Michelle Mayor, a Swiss astronomer, gets up to give a talk. And there are television cameras kind of over to the side. So I knew it was something kind of unique or special, but I, again, I was very naive. And Michelle Mayor got up there and proceeded to tell us about the very first discovery of a planet orbiting another star in our galaxy. Um, This was 51 Peg. 51 Peg is the name of the star. 51 Peg B is the name of the planet. And, you know, at the time, I mean, I listened and 
kind of took it all in, but it didn't really dawn on me at the time, I think, the, the implications and where this was going. So that was just kind of a first introduction. Right. Um, I've only later began to appreciate the, the historical significance of that event. Um, that was humanity's first uh, discovery of a planet orbiting another star like our sun. So it was a very marked moment, and it uh, again, it was just one of the an, another seed that was planted uh, that later would come to fruition. So one thing I, I I've come to I think understand through through researching you is that that orbit that planetary motion, um, and of course that's yeah. what Kepler himself the, the Kepler. Um, the Kepler, uh, Kepler space telescope is, is named after him. <laughs> yes, after the man. Yes. <laughs> and that's that's what he helped discern were these laws of planetary motion. And that that is um, one of the critical things we're looking for when we're looking for planets that could be where life could be possible, right? Where somewhere that, that's exactly that could right. be habitable. Yeah. Planets in what they say is this Goldilocks zone of not too hot, not too cold, just right. Exactly. <laughs> We're looking for a planet for Goldilocks. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say a little yeah. bit more about about Kepler? Because right? I just you know yeah, I think he's not absolutely. he's in that league of Copernicus and Galileo and Newton, but I'm not, I'm not sure he's known quite as well. By Johannes Kepler, yeah, he lived in the 1600s and uh, was a mathematician, very, very brilliant mathematician. Uh, But uh, he was also very, uh, you don't want to know if spiritual is the right word, but he also had this really deep reverence for nature. He was a religious man. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's a story, um, I don't know how you know, how much of it is myth and how much is fact. But there's a story that he was in a a classroom giving a lecture on mathematics and geometry, talking about the platonic solids, these, you know, these these solids that are comprised of polygons, equal-sided polygons on the sides, and and talking about how the geometry of them and how if you nest them together, uh, you get certain ratios between the radii of these shapes and, you know, just, just the geometry of it. And there's this great story that in the middle of this lecture, he's talking about these ratios, this geometry, and all of a sudden he stops. It's like stops him dead in his tracks and he realizes that the ratios he's describing are found in the solar system. And that seemed like an amazing coincidence to him, too amazing. He, it, it, all of a sudden, he, it seemed like you know that the, the numbers and the symmetries and the geometries uh, were intimately connected to the universe in a very fundamental, spiritual kind of way. Hmm. And so he got fixated on that idea, and he set about to prove it. The problem was that it, now we know it doesn't strictly hold true. But but it seemed to him at the time, through his human perspective, that it was too big of a coincidence. It had to be true, you know, <laughs> from his perspective. And so, I mean, what what ended up happening was he spent, you know, decades of his life trying to prove it. And in doing so, stumbled upon what is now known as the laws of planetary motion. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he that's a, ended that's up the way life works, isn't it? Different. True. Right. It, well, it is, but also it's a testament to the scientific method. Mm-hmm. We have human biases. We have mm-hmm. human perspectives, and they bias the way we look at the universe. Mm-hmm. But if we stick to the facts, if we stick to the observations, it's a method of removing that human perspective. And when we do so, amazing things happen. We but, stumble upon something that's even more, even 
and more wonderful. You know? But is it also that that he had? I mean, he he was seeing something that was intriguing, and following that hunch, even though it didn't follow all the way through, um, took him in a direction that pointed at a real discovery. Is that a way? Is that also I, I, a way to see it, it? It's it's true, but I I you know it it. It could have also just been that he wanted to find out what moves the planets and right, how they right. move, you know. I mean, it was a coincidence that that Interesting. Uh, inspiring thought led him to the laws of planetary motion because there's really no connection between these platonic solids and the laws of gravity, oh, right? Okay. They're completely distinct. Mm-hmm. They're completely different. But yet it was his inspiration, you know. So it's it's interesting how that works. It's it's very interesting. Um, another aspect of this story that has really touched me deeply is his persistence, and and the fact that he just encountered roadblock after roadblock. He went down blind alleys, got to the end, and had to turn around and walk his way back. And he never gave up. And he had you know times in his life where he was just feeling despair. Despair, total utter despair and failure. And yet he never gave up. And it's that persistence time and time again I'm seeing in, in the history of humanity. It's that persistence that always leads to greatness. Hmm. And and the Kepler mission itself is kind of an example of that because, you know, it's it's a NASA mission, but it actually was rejected by NASA five times. <laughs> I didn't know it was that. Selected. Yeah, the guy who who you know this whose brainchild this was has been working on the idea since the 1980s, hmm. and it wasn't until the year 2000 that it was finally selected. So, but but again, he was an example of a man who just and who what's his name? Oh, William Baruki, mm-hmm. Bill Baruki mm-hmm. at NASA Ames. Uh, he just uh, you know doesn't see rejection or failure um, as he doesn't take it personally, you know, and just you just keep on going because you love the science. You love doing it. You love the the process of discovery and and learning. Um, So that was another great lesson that I learned from Johannes. And when I when I when I listen and and try to understand um, what the Kepler uh, mission is doing, like how you're doing that science, I mean, just in the context of what you just said, it, it certainly is an exercise in just incredible, incredible patience, right? Almost superhuman patience, right? <laughs> That's right. That you're looking at uh, millions. First of all, you're, you know, you're looking at millions of stars. Look, you know, you're looking for just this, this, this. What you know, in in, in lay terms, in the needle in the haystack. Um, it is a needle in a haystack, right? Yeah. That would that Both, might yeah. be habitable. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we're 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 inferring the existence of these planets by looking for these dimmings of light that happen if a planet in its orbit about the star passes directly in front of the star, kind of eclipsing it. So slightly. that's what you're. So we're, what you're actually looking. What what will be your signal? In fact, is not so, yeah, something you so see, but the dimming of light. <laughs> it's, it's, so what we're doing is we're measuring the brightnesses of stars. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not actually taking pictures of stars and planets. We're measuring their brightnesses, and and then this one patch of sky that we're looking at, like you said, there are about uh, there are millions of stars, literally four and a half million stars in this tiny little patch of sky near the Milky Way, the plane of the Milky Way, a patch of sky that's about the size of my open hand, you know, stretched out in front of me. Um, there are four and a half million stars there, and we've chosen about 150,000 that we're monitoring. Mm. And so we collect the light through a space telescope, and, and that light is is sent down to a detector. 
which is just an array of CCDs. It's exactly what you have in your digital camera when you take a picture. And, and those detectors are measuring the amount of light that falls on them from these 150,000 stars. And so we, we take a measurement of all these stars simultaneously once every 30 minutes. And we've been doing that for three and a half years. <laughs> and, the, right. and the point is you, you take these measurements and you want to do it without blinking because eventually some of those stars are going to have planetary systems that are orbiting and aligned in, a, in such a way that the planet will pass directly between our telescope and the star. And when it does that, that planet is going to cast its shadow out into space, and that shadow is going to sweep across our telescope. <laughs> and our, our detectors are going to perceive that as a, as a dimming of light. The light that it measures is going to decrease ever so slightly. And so that's how we're inferring the existence of the planets. Those signals are tiny, mm-hmm. and they last, a, you know, a couple of hours, and they repeat, you know, once every year. So you really do need patience. You need to stare at these things consistently without blinking, uh, waiting for these signals to occur. But it seems to me also that there's a great deal of excitement and wonder for you in, you know, in in encountering these planets and in what you're learning about planets. And, I mean, you've used phrases like the diversity, the zoology of the planets out there. I mean, what do you right. mean when you yeah. use phrases? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, what what examples do we have of planets? I mean, we have our solar system. You know, what examples do we have of life? We have this one lonely outpost in the cosmos where we know life exists. That's planet Earth. And so, you know, what we know is, is very limited. And you have to realize that reality is going to be much more fantastical than our imagination, that, that our vision is very myopic. And so science is about going out there and discovering and pushing those boundaries and finding out what's there and, and, and knowing that you're going to encounter surprises and that the diversity is going to be incredibly great and much more wonderful than, than you might have imagined. And that's exactly what we're finding. You know, there was this, um, I think it was on the third anniversary of the, the Kepler launch. And what was that, 2009? The, the, when the Kepler mm-hmm. Space Telescope launched, it, yeah, it launched in March of two thousand nine. Yeah, right? that you wrote you wrote a lovely piece, uh, and it was on Facebook <laughs> as okay. part of your profound <laughs> Facebook page. Um, <laughs> and you you quoted Kepler. I just I, I I wanted to read this back to you. It's very beautiful. The, Kepler saying the diversity of the phenomena of nature is so vast, and the treasures hidden in the heavens so rich precisely in order that the human mind shall never be lacking in fresh nourishment. I thought That's that was right. an interesting way to describe at least some angle of, uh, you know, what what the scientific endeavor is. I mean, it, it, does that ring true for you? That, to one, oh one way gosh. to think about the meaning of science, this nourishment of the human mind. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you read it and it makes my eyes all, all misty. <laughs> it, it really it, it does. I mean, I've, I've lived it and I, I feel it. And, um, and I have this uh, intense, as I said, reverence for, for the mysteries of the cosmos and, and this drive of, of discovery, you know, this, this desire to know. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it's because I want to find meaning for my own life, but you know there's something innate about us human beings that makes us want to to seek 
the unknown, to push the boundaries, to find new horizons, to see new things. And, you know, I don't know why, why we're like that, but, but we are. You know, Carl Sagan has a, a quote that's akin to this. He said, understanding is, is a form of ecstasy. You know, it, it really mm. is. I mean, when we when we have these aha moments, you know, when we really understand something, or there's a spark of understanding, um, we feel that euphoria. Um, I, I try to tell that to kids. You know, I, I talk to kids. In fact, I just got back from a two week tour in India. Um, I spoke to probably something like three to five thousand children in, in India, high school aged, and asked them why. Why are we going out there and finding planets? Why why are we doing this? And the answers are very diverse, but a lot of people raise their hand and say, because I want to know if there's life out there. Um, You know, we do. We want to know. There's something about us that wants to know. And I think that's what's fundamentally important. And I... I also think that this act of discovery, this act of exploration, um, as you alluded to earlier, it, it changes us. You know, we're, we're, we're evolving towards something. Hmm. And the act of discovery, of exploration, is, is, is evolving us, is changing our brains. It's evolving our species. It's leading us someplace. I don't know where, but it's leading us someplace. And that probably has something to do with the drive uh, for learning, for, for knowledge. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, a couple of things come to mind when you say that. First of all, I think, uh, you know, childhood is a time where we're, we're so in touch with that, that longing to know, mm-hmm. right? That curiosity, that ability just to, to be amazed and wonder. And, mm-hmm. and, and it seems to me that scientists, uh, you know, scientists can, are, are some of the people who really get to hang on to that through, throughout mm-hmm. the lifespan. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, which is a wonderful thing that. to see. Um, yeah. It gets driven. It's funny out though of because that's the, not the. Huh? Yeah, it's driven out of us, but that's not the stereotype, right? No. I mean, but most people think, like I did, that scientists are these kind of boring, dry, uh, lack of passion kind of people. But I, I, I agree. I think it's very much the opposite. Yeah. Um, we've we've actually been working on a uh, a program we're doing on. The thought of Teilhard de Chardin. Have you ever heard of him? He, he was a Jesuit Mm-mm. paleontologist a hundred years ago, and he helped excavate the Peking Man fossil. I can't spend too much time mm-hmm. on this because I want to keep talking <laughs> to you, but I, it's going to interest you because he had this okay. idea. He was working on evolution as a you know in Darwinian terms with fossils, mm-hmm. but he also developed these really interesting ideas that a lot of people are thinking about now about the next stage of evolution, which he thought would absolutely be driven by human intelligence and consciousness and spirit. Right. So when right. I hear you, when I yeah, hear you looking for planets and, and using that same kind of language, it's very interesting yeah. to me. Well, you know, you made me think of something else. I, I often wonder about, or I think about the transition that life underwent here on planet Earth when it went from water or ocean to land. Mm-hmm. Life on Earth changed dramatically at that point when we went from, from ocean to land or water to land. And then I, I extrapolate that and I, I wonder what will happen to us as a species as we transition from land to space. Right. What, what, are, what, what potential will be released? You know, how, how will we change? How will we evolve? What implications does that have? And that, that thought excites me a lot. And 
And the way you say that, it sounds like for you, it's a given that we'll make that transition. And I mean, I also hear it seems to me that that a given or certainly a, a possibility that you and your colleagues are devoted to 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 realizing is that maybe even in our lifetimes, we might look out and know that there are habitable planets. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's a given. I mean, that's we're doing given. that now. Mm-hmm. That's ab- absolutely. I mean, that's mm-hmm. Kepler. We're, we're searching for uh, not just that. That first planet that Michel Mayor announced in 1995, yeah. it's a it's a planet very, it's a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting in like a three-day orbital period around its star. It's, it's very close to its parent star. It's a giant planet, very different than something that would harbor life. Uh, Kepler, the Kepler mission is something quite different. It's, it's looking for Earth-sized planets. It's looking for that Earth and Analog, you know, mere Earth, as Mike Lemonick <laughs> termed it, or, or twin Earth, or, hmm. you know, we're trying to find out what fraction of stars in our galaxy have such planets. How many potentially habitable outposts are there in our galaxy? That's what we're trying to figure out. And it's only a matter of time once we know the answer to that question. Uh, it's only a matter of time before we will know of outposts that do harbor life. So, I mean, uh, how we're do headed you, in that direction. How do you think about what is at stake in that discovery, or what what difference what difference does it make in your imagination if that turns out to be true? When when you look up at the sky, I'm sure you've had this experience. I'm sure all humans have had this experience of looking up into the sky on a very dark night and looking at those stars or that crescent moon or whatever it is, what do you feel? You know, you, you feel wonder, of course. Uh, you feel humility. But I think you also feel lonely, small, insignificant. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, a profound sense of, of loneliness, I think, or just the universe is so big and I'm so small. But imagine... In the near-term future, you know, your, your grandchild or your great-grandchild looks up in the sky and, and his mother can point to a star and say, you know, that star right there, that star has a planet just like Earth, and it harbors life. That, that's a different perspective. <laughs> that's, that's completely different, you know. When we can look up in the sky and know that, your perspective is going to be different. So it's it's a game changer, right? It's mm-hmm. just it completely changes our perspective. And, um, you know, I suppose where our most of our minds go would be to science fiction, which is the place where we have imaginatively explored that. Um, right. But then it's so interesting for me to read that in 2011, Kepler actually discovered a planet that had a double sunset like the one in Star Wars. Yes, so that, yes, right, yes. So that even like the Tatooine, right, the Tatooine. science fiction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, do you do you do you watch science fiction or read science fiction? How do you populate your imagination with? Yeah. With what you that? know, interestingly, I, I'm an exception to the rule. I, I did not grow up uh, being an avid, uh, as an avid science fiction Star fan. Star Trek fan? Let's just be honest. Um, I like it. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. I yeah. do. I like it. Yeah. I enjoy it. I love to imagine. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I do enjoy those. And I like the... It's funny with Star Trek, more than the alien encounters, you know, I, I really enjoyed the ethical questions that yes. Star Trek raises, yes. you know. I loved the character data. You know, and yeah. what that meant for our humanity and all those kinds of ethical questions, I think, were more interesting to me. So 
Um, I, I didn't need any help with my imagination, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I didn't need science fiction. But it is interesting how science informs science fiction, but the opposite is quite true as well. Science fiction informs, not informs science, but inspires science as well. Um, it's an interesting interplay that speaks to our humanity. Yeah. So, so mystery is a term... Um, You've used and and it's it's a term I I hear a lot of scientists using it 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 might you know with a Kepler I think it would have had religious religious connotations it, but even if it doesn't I mean it's a word Einstein used a great deal it's mm-hmm. certainly there for you I mean I just want to I want to read a little bit back of yourself um, you, re, 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 <laughs> from it's, Facebook <laughs> yes yes it's, well now I know that's where some people write poetry reality <laughs> is a poem on the tip of my tongue that I can't quite remember familiar yet distant it, it's a form seen through a veil and, and later on you write you know that as a scientist you live life as if every mystery is there for us to discover and understand yeah <sighs> Yeah, I, I I feel that, yes. Um, I think that's what inspires me. Um, I read a lot of people with the opposite, opposite perspective, and it seems very sad to me to have that perspective, that there is a limit to what we can know. You know, interestingly, Carl Sagan's book, this one I spoke of, Brokaw's Brain, it's kind of one of, one of the very beginning chapters is, I think, called Reflections on a Grain of Salt. <laughs> and it's, the idea is, you know, is there a limit to what we can know? I kind of have this feeling like we, we walk around in our human existence trying to create an image of the universe in our brain, trying to reproduce the universe by recording it in our brain and, and working towards making that image beautiful and, and, and accurate and, you know, learning and all of that. Um, so Carl asked the question, well, what, what is the limitation of our brain? Can our brain record the universe? And, and then he goes through this really simple argument. He says, well, you know, let's look at how many atoms are in a grain of salt, just one tiny crystal of salt. You know, if, if we're going to know a crystal of salt, if we're going to make an image of that in our brain, we have to know at least something about the positions of all the atoms. And, of course, there's more to know, right? How are those atoms moving and interacting and all that? But let's just make it simple. And then he says, okay, if we're going to know the positions of these atoms, you know, how many atoms are there? How many neurons are there in our brain? You know, what do we know about how we store information in our brain? And, and he quickly concludes that, no, we cannot know the universe in our, in our mind. And then he goes on to say, unless there are unifying theories, unless there are patterns, unless the universe is not chaos, unless the universe is ordered, because if it is ordered and if there are patterns, if there are rules, uh, then we can boil down that one grain of salt into a couple of facts that we can record in our brain and use to reconstruct the universe. Mm. And so, so that idea is very exciting. You know, how much of the universe is ordered? How, how can we coalesce it down into the basics? And that and, is and such then, a, a question that's so alive in physics, isn't it? I mean, it's, exactly. it's huge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that's the whole impetus for searching for a grand unification theory, right? Right, right. That's the whole impetus. Because if we can, then yes, we can know the universe. And so, I don't know, my, my perspective is that, yes, that is possible. That uh, and that's maybe akin to religious faith. Maybe that's as far as I can go okay. on with the idea of, of of blind faith. You know, I yeah. just I I 
I guess the bottom line is uh, maybe we don't know that that's true, but we don't know that it's not true. Yeah. Nobody, nobody can tell me that we can't. And so I find the idea, the possibility exciting. And so that inspires me. So, I mean, here's a way you've written about, you know, just some language you've used. What we observe out there is that nature is creative, prolific, robust. So I want to ask mm-hmm. this question. You know, how does that sense of the universe, um, the, of nature that you get, you know, how does that inform the way you move through the world, you know, the, way, yeah. the way you think about life and your life? Oh, goodness. There's a lot of suffering to human existence, right? Mm-hmm. So you, mm-hmm. you made me think of that. Um, you know, nature is prolific and robust and, and all of that and creative. And, and we, are, we overcome adversity and uh, we do things. We push the envelope. We do things that we once thought were impossible and all of that. Um, I wrote those words thinking about the possibility of life. You know, there's kind of two schools of thought as to whether or not there's other life out there in the universe. On, on one side of the spectrum, you've got the pluralists, the people who say, you know, there are 400 flippin' billion stars in our galaxy and there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. How could there possibly not be life out there? Right. Yeah. And so the idea is just that there are so many, so many stars, so many worlds out there. There's got to be life. On the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, you have, maybe I'll call them the rare earthers. These are the people that say, you know, there are so many coincidences that had to converge, so many subtle properties that all had to hang together and converge here on planet Earth to make life possible. And that's probably not very common. It's a, you know, it's a confluence of many different things that had to happen. So you've got these two extremes. And and for me, I look around here on planet Earth and I say, well, you know, no matter how extreme the environment here on Earth, no matter what rock we pick up and look under, no matter how, how dark, how cold, how hot, how arid, how acidic, no matter how extreme the environment, there seems to be life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what inspired me to say that nature seems to be prolific and creative and robust and, you know, put itself in every nook and cranny. And if it does that here on planet Earth, my thought is that it's going to do it out there in the universe as well. I, I didn't actually plan to talk to you about this, but I have to say this idea, I've never understood. And I mean, I've studied theology and I, I, I know these traditions. I've never really understood the idea that discovering life on another planet would, you know, would 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 diminish us, um, or if you are a person who believes in God, it, or that there's you know that there's a creative intelligence behind all of this, that it would diminish God. I don't know. Do you think right. about that? Because I, I know oh, that is I, that it's preposterous. Yeah, but I mean, you that must seems have like such a narrow vision. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah. I mean, but it's kind of a given. It's I think we take it as a given as part of our cultural conversation about this thing you're doing, this this pursuit of determining if there's life on a, in other planets. That somehow it presents this great existential theological threat to humanity. 
Oh um, my goodness! You know, personally, I don't come across that. And you I don't talk to a lot. Mm-hmm. No, I, I talk to a lot of people, hundreds mm-hmm. and thousands and thousands of people I've talked to, and I've never once come across that. And maybe it's because the audiences are biased. You know, they're they're people that who who seek out this kind of a lecture, this kind of a conversation, so they have a certain perspective to begin with. But um, even in my day to day life, I've never encountered that. I think people. Um, for the most part, the people that I encounter are very excited about this idea. They don't have this kind of egocentric, uh, you know, earth-centered, human-centered mm-hmm. vision that that historically has led us down wrong paths. Right? I mean, right. And how maybe many times we're do we need this. to be taught? <laughs> yeah, I think that we are. Yeah, yeah that's a good. And maybe way to put it's it. a I classic. I mean, it's a classic argument. But you're right. Maybe, maybe it's yeah. maybe we we are we are growing up about that. I think as a species, we've outgrown it. I really Uh do. Uh Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We've been down that path too many times. We've learned our lesson. I mean, you also bring words like love. You just you just mentioned suffering. Mm -hmm. I I think something that's very intriguing about you as a scientist. It's not that you're it's not that you're confusing these things with your science or conflating it them, but I sense that this life of discovery that you're involved in does bring you back to think about something like love um, differently, that it informs and somehow infuses um, Mm -hmm. your thinking about that. So talk to me about that. Yeah. This has been a surprise to me, actually, um, that my perspective on love has been so informed by science. Um, But it has. It's been fundamentally shifted. You know, it's... it's, And then I, I read other scientists who've had the same perspective and it all kind of makes sense. I mean, Carl Sagan's quote, you know, for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. Mm. You know, mm. and, and this, this, you know, love, this idea is this moving force. I mean, it, it's just permeates our, our, our history, our, our, our culture, right? I mean, it goes back to Dante and, you know, the, the planets and stars being moved by love, he writes, you know, in the... And that's the it. It's observable. Yeah. It's observable, yeah. like things I are mean, observable we, we, in science. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. I mean, he, it's, you know, of course, it's moved by gravity, but, you know, okay, okay <laughs> I, I get that. I really yeah. do. You know, the, even the Hindu creation myths, you know, before... Before there was anything, you know, love was the spark that that uh, moved the cosmos. And you know, even myself, I've I've equated it to, um, you know, this analogy of dark matter. You right. Ninety five percent of the mass of the universe being something we can't even see, and yet it it moves us, it draws us, it creates galaxies. We're like we're like moving on a current of this <sighs> gravitational field created by mostly stuff that we can't see. And and I and the analogy with with love just struck me, you know, that that it's like this thing that we can't see, that we don't understand, yet it's everywhere and it moves us. Um, and, and science has, has given me that perspective, but, but also in, in very logistical, tangible, practical ways, you know. I mean, when you study science, you, you step out of planet Earth. You look back down at this blue sphere and you see a world with no borders, Right. You right. see a tiny mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. You see the the expanse of the cosmos and you realize how small we are and and how connected we are and that we are all the same. And that what's good for you has to be good for me. 
You know, mm. I mean, it, it just it changes your perspective. You know, it, it it pains me to see what's going on in the world right now, not only with our environment, but with the economic situation. Mm. It pained me to go to India and see the poverty. It pained me to live in Brazil for five years and be exposed to poverty. And I think we, we need to... Um, to gain perspective, that perspective, and really, really honestly believe that what's good for for those people over there in Europe or India or Brazil or wherever, what's good for them is good for me. And to have that global perspective. And, and that, to me, is love, and that is informed by science. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I mean, you have this, you have this advantage of, you know, this, this cosmic perspective, right? I mean, a sense of mm-hmm. con- connection that is, that is cosmic. Um, mm-hmm. um, do you, was there was there a moment or did something happen where you where you first realized you were thinking about love the way you were thinking about dark energy? Oh my goodness! I mean, because it's um, a really interesting connection. I would say, you know, also thinking it changes the way you think about love. I mean, it is an energy, yeah. right? It's not; it's just yeah. a feeling inside you. Um, yeah, you're right. Well, certainly. I mean, with the, with my own personal experiences, uh, you know, being middle aged and having raised four children. I know and, you have four children. Yeah. I have four children, <laughs> and um, you know, just going through life and all of life's challenges and adversity and losing people that we love and all of those things make us think about love. Um, you know, we need to be loved and to love mm-hmm. to be happy. Um, with science, I. I I think about life out there in the universe. I think about our connectedness. I guess connectedness is a key word. You know, uh, studying science, you realize the connectedness of all things. And we are these, you know, we are, we are stardust. And here I am, this bag of stardust. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it took how many billions of years for me to, for the atoms that make up my body to come together and make this, this being that's able to take a, a conscious look at the universe. I mean, I am the universe and I'm taking a look at myself mm. through these senses that I have. And that is an amazing thing. And, and so you, you start to realize all the connectedness of, of everything. You know, we're all connected. I'm connected to a star out there in the universe. And and that's an amazing thing. And and then I think about I mean, for you how, that's such a concrete statement. Also, given I, you know, somebody else could say that, and it, it might seem a little flaky, but you really know what yeah. you're talking about. I mean, yeah. you've, you've you've discovered right. the first rocky planet and things like that. You really know yeah, these. Yeah, I things. don't. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good point. I don't uh-huh. necessarily mean it in kind of a hippie flowers in my uh-huh. hair kind of way. It's you know, it's easy to say all these fluffy philosophical words that make us all warm and fuzzy, but yeah. but there are really practical, you know, connections. There are things that I do see that are real, that are that are part of what we're discovering and you know, and, and I, I said to the kids in, in India, actually, just last week, I said, you know, we were talking about love at the end of my lecture. And oh. I said, you know, I said, okay, how many, they were teenagers, right? So I said, how many of you are on Facebook? And, and of course, everybody raises their hand, right? Yeah. And I said, okay, why does it give you so much pleasure? Why? You know, why think about the happiness that it gives you? You know, what is it exactly? Is it, you know, you're, you're connecting to other human beings, and, and that gives you joy. You have this huge array of people that you, that you resonate with, and that gives you joy. Um, you know, and so, so I'm thinking about this as, as love and, and how we experience the, the connectedness between us as creatures here on planet Earth. And then I start to wonder, again, you know, what, what is the potential? 
when we are able to connect not just with human beings on planet Earth, but with other species out in the universe? What, what will we feel? What, how can this idea of love be extended, not just to my family, not just to my community, not just to my country, but to planet Earth and out into the universe once we find life out there? Um, it seems to me <laughs> there's an awful lot of potential there that we've yet to tap into, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I so, mean, I'm, so. I'm always, I, this also, you know, uh, uh, this animating question that, that always that I'm always following is, you know, what does it mean to be human and, and what do we learn about that in all these different lives we lead and these, this knowledge we have? And it, it just, I mean, that's, that's also a place you're taking that question of what, what it means mm-hmm. to be human, right? You're, you're taking it to this um, place where you're also thinking about uh, us um, connecting with life uh, and connecting right. to life, which, which may not be, which may or may not be like us, um, right. beyond our species. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a definition on on your Facebook page again. Um, <laughs> I hope you pointed those Indian students to your Facebook page. I do, um, where you you said this. Uh, so again, this question in my mind, you know, how does how does this shape the way this work you do shape the way you think about what it means to be human? And you wrote, you know, that I'm that you were aware of uh, the billions of years it took for the atoms to come together and make the portal to the universe that is my physical self. Right. That is a right fascinating definition of mm-hmm. what it means to be human that yeah. we are portals to the universe yeah yeah <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's, that's about as much as I can say about it I mean that's the reality right and why that exists I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if there's any meaning. I don't know where I'm headed. I don't know why we're here. I don't know why we're observing the universe and making this record, this recording, this impression of the universe in our brain, this thing that is our brain. I don't know why. But I know that it's leading us someplace, you know, that, that we do have this innate curiosity, this, this drive of... of using this portal to the universe to observe and to learn, and it's taking us someplace. And, and along the way, it's changing us. Hmm. Hmm. So, so it's a feedback loop, and it's, it's, it's exciting because, I, you know, it just, there's potential there again, and it's just, I don't know what the limit is, hmm. but, you know, we just, we, 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 uh, we're in the stream, <laughs> you know, we're, yeah. we're in the stream, and we're just flowing down and just letting it happen and seeing where it takes us. Um, I also experience you to be very much um, to care a lot about the the human dimension of of science of the collective aspect of that, and um, it actually made me think of all the reading I, d- I did of Einstein at one point. I mean, he mm-hmm. his 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 idealism about science was 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 pretty dashed by by fascism and war and and science mm-hmm. and fe- chemists and physicists creating bombs but but he did really believe in the potential of science to be this kind of transnational sphere and I, you know i just mm-hmm. i was thinking about that as you were writing about um remembering the night that the kepler telescope telescope first launched and just just and you were reflecting not only on that achievement but on how many people it took to build a spaceship 
and mm-hmm. the joy that was there for all the people who were gathered to watch that and mm-hmm. and the stories of the people over time who you've known who've been involved in the mission as kind of a human bridge. I think you may have said it this way, between our world and, and those worlds you'd like to find. Right. That's, right. It's a yeah, real, well, really, ex- real experience that most of us don't get to have, right? To take yeah, that I think that that, I mean, that also touches upon love, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, love is, is, is cooperation, collaboration, feeling that greatness, you know, coming together and doing something that you couldn't do alone. Um, I, I, that Kepler has served as an example of that. And, and I, when I went to India, you know, I started my lectures by saying exactly that, that this is not a project. We did not spend $600 million to satisfy the ego of one man, of one scientist. And I would argue it's not for the ego of one country either. This is a quest for humanity. We are doing this for humanity. That's what drives us. And the questions that humanity is trying to answer are becoming increasingly more and more complex and are going to require more and more resources and more and more ideas and cooperation and collaboration. If we are going to get out there and visit these planets that we're finding, if we're going to explore space, it's going to require all nations, all human beings on this planet. And and we've we've got to get to a place where we can cooperate and work together and and accomplish that. And we're not there yet, but I think that we're moving in that direction. And missions like Kepler are serving as an example. What is the the Planet Hunters project that that involves citizens that you you've, yeah. you've been part of or you've been a real champion of, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this um, is part of the Zooniverse project, which. Um, provides an interface of it, it gives the citizens an opportunity to experience this excitement of scientific discovery uh, so what it is for Kepler um, you go to the website and a back-end computer system is going to serve you uh, Kepler data it's going to show you mm. the actual data that we look at it's it's these brightness measurements as a function of time and you can loop through these, and, and the computer will ask you a couple of very simple questions. It'll say, you know, what do you see? What does this look like to you? And, and you know, give you some options, and, and it'll just, just very, very simple questions. And you tool through this data, and in doing so, you have the opportunity to find something interesting that our computer algorithms have missed. I mean, the, the human brain is an amazing pattern recognition tool, right? We, we do not know how to simulate that on a computer yet. Hmm. We can't, right? The brain is an amazing pattern recognition tool. We've tried to simulate that with a very, very sophisticated, powerful computer pipeline that analyzes our data, and it does really, really well. Don't get me wrong. But we can't design a one algorithm that can handle the diversity of nature, right? They're going to be surprises, right? And so you put uh, a million people, citizens, in front of a computer looking, and they're going, with their, with their pattern recognition tool, which is their brain, they're going to find things that we missed. And that is exactly what's happened. Uh, they have uh, had two papers, actually a third paper just came out um, with new planet candidates that they have identified, um, four new planet candidates from the Kepler data. Um, and in addition, they just found um, one of these circumbinary planets like Tatooine in Star Wars. Um, <laughs> right, with one of these <laughs> two planets yeah, in fact, it's two planets um, in orbiting uh, a double star system. 
And so the reason I think that this is so tremendously important is because it shows that, it, it, you know, I didn't understand what science was until I started doing it mm. and experienced that thrill of discovery. You know, it's that it's all about that thrill of discovery. And it's not about a, a, a Caucasian middle-aged male in a white lab coat mixing chemicals in a lab all by himself. That's not that's not science. You know, it's it's the discovery. And if people could just realize that at a younger age, I think more people in, in our country, you know, a country where people aren't necessarily opting to do science. I think that more people would would catch that bug, you know, and 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 pursue science as a career. If I had had that experience at an earlier age, perhaps I would have found my path a little bit earlier as well. Well, you found um, your path. <laughs> I think. Yeah, we what? get there, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. we are lucky. Here yeah. in the United States, we are very lucky. If I lived in a country like India or Brazil or even Europe, I would not have had the flexibility of being able to change my path midway right. in college. Right. Uh, we are very lucky with our educational system, the way it's set up here, that it gives you that flexibility to make those important choices. Yeah. It's kind of to discover your path in a way. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, you you actually did make a really important discovery, um, or you helped discover the first rocky planet orbiting a star outside right. our solar system. Yes. Well, what correct. was that like? What was that like? Oh my gosh, that was that was an amazing experience. Um, so the the Kepler mission launched in March of 2009 and you know there's a you you launch this thing you put this very sensitive instrument on this tower of explosives and you send it out into space and and it gets up there and of course you have to check out that everything everything's still okay and you know it's like a one month period where we're kind of on pins and needles checking out the spacecraft making sure everything's fine and doing all of our calibrations and all of that and then there's this 10 day period where we open up the telescope to stars and we start taking our very first observations and it's kind of a trial run. And in that 10 days, in that trial run, we saw already the signal of a small planet, what could be a small planet, orbiting a star about 540 light years away, a star that we later called Kepler-10. Or sometimes I refer to uh, as the Vulcan system. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're giving it good names. I have to say yeah. the the names I tend know, to be so A, B, C, D, ten. <laughs> yeah, the planet yeah. ended up to be Kepler ten B, but mm-hmm. we saw this right away, and and it was exciting because it pointed, if indeed it was the planet, it was only forty percent larger than Earth, so one point four times the size of the Earth. Um, but very different than the Earth. This planet orbits its star not once every 365.25 days. It orbits its star once every 0.89 days. Oh. You know, so 20, 20 some odd hours, right, it takes to go around its star once. Wow. And what that means, what Johannes Kepler taught us, is that the shorter the orbital period, the closer the planet is to its parent star. And this planet is so close to its parent star that it's literally, it's like this blow-torched world, right? right the star-facing right. side has temperatures higher than that necessary to melt iron. It's, yeah. it's this really weird, exotic kind of place. But, but we, we started following up um, this star, taking observations, uh, follow-up observations from ground-based telescopes like the Keck 10-meter telescope in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as we saw this signal... 
And the reason it's special is because uh, not only were we able to confirm that it is a planet orbiting this star 540 light years away, we were also able to get its mass, to measure its mass, um, with these observations we took with the Keck 10-meter telescope. And the reason that was important is because the, the Kepler mission, the data that we get with Kepler, gives us the radius of the planet, how, how large it is. Uh, and then we got the mass. And if you know the mass and the radius, now you can compute mass divided by volume, which is density. And density is a really interesting number because the density of our solar system planets is, can be quite different. You know, Jupiter has a density of like one, one gram per cubic centimeter. That's, that's the density of water. Mm. Uh, Saturn has a density even less. Saturn, if you could put it in a bathtub of water that's big enough, it would float, right? But, but our own Earth has a density of five and a half grams per cubic centimeter. Um, so our own Earth is very different. So, so if you can compute the density of a, of a planet you can say something about what it's made out of. And it was because we got the density of this planet that we knew, without a doubt, that this was a rocky world. This is something kind of Earth-sized that you could actually stand on, you know, a world mm -hmm. very, very much like Earth. So that's why that discovery was important. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was an exciting moment for you. Oh, it was tremendous. Um, you know, to see the signal and the data so clearly in that first 10 days, of course, uh, you know, showed that the, everything was working right. So it was exciting from that perspective. Yeah. But also just to have that discovery to know, I mean, that was our first indication that, oh, my God, we're going to find lots of these things. We're okay. going to find lots of Earth-sized planets. And that was, that was tremendously exciting. Um, as time went on, I mean, I have this great email from one of the premier planet hunters in the world, uh, <laughs> Jeff Marcy. He, he was the one who was responsible for taking the Keck observations to get the mass. And I've got, just got this great email from him. He sent me um, an email showing me the preliminary results and said, you know, look, Natalie, here it is. There's the signal. And look, it's, it's right at exactly the same uh, time scale as the Kepler data indicated. It's right exactly where mm -hmm. we thought it was going to be. That was a tremendous moment to see that plot and see that signal start to pull out of the data like that. It was just mm. fabulous. Yeah. I feel like something that's happening now, and you just embody it, is... And somehow these space telescopes are making a big difference. You know, Hubble is one that people see these images. Um, it, it's, it's kind of bringing all of that more into awareness. It feels... Right, it feels more real, and and also getting a sense of um, the exuberance and and beauty uh, that's not just in the in the images that come back, but in this process of discovery. You know, in people like you who are working on this frontier. Right. Um, you yeah. know, there's there's something new happening uh, that that uh, that doesn't all feel so abstract anymore. Interesting. What did what did I was well, Kepler called? What did he think? He called his the work he was doing celestial physics <laughs> because I uh -huh. guess they hadn't even that is very been, abstract, isn't yes, it? Yeah. Right, like but they hadn't. But astronomy and physics at that point, interestingly, were two separate disciplines. But uh, yeah, do you I, know you what know, I mean? I, and that's why I think I, when people hear somebody like you talk, it's such a revelation. Uh, yeah, that this is what science is. That this is what it is to be uh -huh. a scientist, and and it's it's the spirit of it. It's the the joy of it, yeah. as much as anything else. That's a discovery. Well, I you know I I think what you're saying maybe is that now in very concrete ways we are 
through our instruments, our telescopes, our robots on Mars, we are extending our senses out into the cosmos mm. in a very real, tangible way. And that makes it so much easier, you know, to to capture our, our imagination, to inspire us, you know, through the Curiosity rover. We are standing there in our hiking boots on the yeah. surface of Mars. Man, I can I can practically hear the crunching of the dirt underneath my feet. Yeah. You know, it feels like I could pick up, bend down and pick up a rock and toss it over that hill over there, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's what it's like. So in, in a very real way, uh, these experiments are extending our senses out into the cosmos. And so maybe that's what you're tapping into. Maybe that's what you're experiencing with these modern experiments that we're doing. That's such a great image. I, I know we have to finish um, Hard Stop in about seven minutes. I want to just ask you... Um, when you when you take a walk or take a run and you look at the night sky <laughs> with all this work you do with all this data and these images that you're working with all the time and everything you know about what we call space um you know what do you see what do you what do you what do you oh, see goodness. what do you take yeah. in Goodness, I have so many examples. It's hard to pick just one. Um, I've had some some really key moments in my life, two in particular, maybe I can tell you about. Um, one is very simple. I, w- I was out on a run, actually. You mentioned running. I was out on a run, and it was summertime, so I like to run at, at night when it's dark in the summertime because it's nice and cool. And as I'm running, I'm thinking about lots of different things. But, of course, I also think about work and the discoveries that we're making. And, you know, I talk to people a lot about it, so it's a lot on my mind. And as I'm running home, I look up at the sky, and the moon is kind of was hanging on the horizon over in, in the west. And, and I look up at the stars, and in that split second, just that, that fraction of a second, when I first saw the starry sky, I saw not pinpoints of light, which are stars. I saw planetary systems. I saw solar systems. I saw other planets out there. And it's really hard to describe what I felt. It's, it's really hard to articulate that kind of an experience. It's, it's something very personal. You know, when you, when you look up and you see something in a very different way, it's like I internalized Mm-hmm. deeply mm-hmm. what I've been Learning discovering, what Kepler has been discovering as a scientist. Yeah. And so that's what I mean when I say that when we'll look up at the sky and we will look at it differently. I've experienced that in a very real, tangible way. So so that's, that's one example. Um, another really important moment in my life uh, was when I went to Chile to the European Southern Observatory uh, to do some observing through telescopes there um, when I was a postdoc, a young postdoc and working in Brazil. And in Chile on this telescope on the top of this mountain, um, you know, you're, you're at a very, very high altitude. And it's desolate. I mean, there's nothing up there, right, because you're at such a high altitude. And... I, in the middle of the night, the sky, of course, is completely black. I mean, just a starry sky, and you're in the southern hemisphere. And I decided to climb up onto the roof of the telescope building that I was using that night. There's, there was like a ladder and stairs that go up to the top and a platform where you can stand. And astronomers do that, you know. We go out and we look at the sky and see how it's doing, seeing if there's clouds and all <laughs> right. that kind of stuff. So I, I did that. I went up there. And so now I'm on top of this gigantic mountain desolate, nothing around me, 
not only on top of a mountain, but on top of a building on top of a mountain. So I laid down actually on the seal on the roof of this building and literally all around me, there was nothing but stars. Right. We don't get to experience that very often, having this complete dome over your head, uh, which is the universe. But but the experience that I had was that I saw the Milky Way arcing through the, the sky. I saw planets that were in the sky. I think there was a crescent moon that was in the sky. I could see the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are satellite galaxies of our own Milky Way. I saw the Colsac Nebula, which is this giant molecular cloud between, you know, between us and the center of the galaxy. I saw all of these things, and I knew something about them. I had knowledge of them. Right. And this knowledge of them gave me three-dimensionality to the universe. Lying there on the roof of this building, I all of a sudden... It transformed itself. It was not a dome over my head. It was a three-dimensional universe that I was suspended in. And, and that was a, an amazing moment for me. It, it just it changed the way I saw the universe and, and my place in the universe. And, and it was afforded me through my knowledge and my studies of astronomy. And I just, I wish that people on planet Earth could, could have that perspective. You know, I wish that we could elevate ourselves and, and become literate and enough and educated enough to, to have that knowledge. I, I think that it's a gift, and mm. I, I, I wish it for humanity. I really, really deeply do. Oh, well, that's a beautiful image to leave with. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I, there was another place on your, on your Facebook page where you mentioned that song, Starry, Starry Night, with Vincent van Gogh. Do you oh, yeah, that? And yes, which that it always made you cry when you were growing up, although, as you've said, you had no idea that this is where you'd end up. But since then, I was I read that, and then I t- thought about, I was reading into you, and, and now I can't get that song out of my head, and I'm sure it will stay with me <laughs> for days. It's, it's oh, just funny. It's been such a joy yeah. um, discovering you, and we'll be producing this, oh. I know, after the first of the year, so, you know, pro- maybe even late January, February, but we'll, we'll let you okay. fill you in and send links and all of that, and if you know, there Wonderful. may be some questions in the meantime it's just been really great thank you so much for for coming in oh gosh it's been a a huge pleasure we don't often get the chance to to speak about this side of science so it's it's really been a huge pleasure thank you so much thank you (laughs) bye-bye bye-bye